Welcome to Straight Thinking. On today's special episode, we're taking a look back at one of our favorite discussions. Now tune in with philosopher Ken Samples, Joe Aguirre, and Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, does Christianity provide the best explanation for the human condition? Ken discusses Blaise Pascal's insights on the state of human beings. And Ken, we've uh, talked about uh, Blaise Pascal before, but we're always welcoming new listeners to the podcast, and you're going a slightly different direction. So maybe you can kind of guide us through here. Yes, Joe. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Pascal's anthropology. And, you know, I, I think that many people, both secular and religious, uh, including Christians, they think that a good anthropology, that is an anthropology that has a lot of explanatory power, probably puts you in a good place toward getting at the truth. And, and of course, what is what are human beings? Uh, this has scientific implications. It has biblical implications, psychological explanations. So I'd like to, again, kind of return. Remember, Pascal is one of my big three. Augustine, Pascal, and Lewis. So I want to talk a little bit about his anthropology and, and compare it and contrast it with competing worldview anthropologies. Now, for the sake of people who might be new, uh, when you use the word anthropology, it's not your typical college course on the beginnings of uh, humanity. Uh, you're talking about a, a biblical topic, a biblical uh, uh, the uh, theology. That's right. I, I'm you know, if you think about a worldview and you think of a worldview being like a cluster of your most important beliefs would include beliefs about God. It would be it would include beliefs about how you what's ultimate reality, God, the world. How do we know things, uh, our value system, logic. But I, I think a, another component in all of that, another big issue is what's your view of human beings? Where, where you know, what are what what's their greatest need and what's the answer to that that need so yes exactly that's that's the direction i want to take it more of a philosophical theological though i do want to touch a little bit on on some of the science ideas yeah and uh you're going to lead to uh, engagement with uh, an issue that's in the culture today the christian culture that is that's debated among uh, christian uh, apologists and other leaders so uh, we can look forward to that coming a little bit later. That's right. Uh, Joe, I think it's always good to give our listeners a little uh, reminder about Pascal. Um, he was a distinguished scientist. His dates, of course, 1623 to 1662. That's a very short life. He died at 39 years old. He had something like stomach cancer. And it snuffed out one of the great minds of Western civilization. I mean, this is a guy who was a physicist. In fact, uh, scientists today, when they address pressure, uh, they use his name, Pascal. Uh, of course, this is a man who is the only Christian in the world who had a computer language named after him. Um, he was a physicist. He was a mathematician. He developed uh, probability theory. I mean, some have said about him that he was embarrassed 
with all the abilities that he had. And, and by the way, Joe, as an editor, he could write prose. I mean, he was a good writer. And, and usually being a philosopher, theologian, scientist gets in the way of being a good writer. But mm -hmm. he was all of those kinds of things. Um, Pascal, of course, thought very highly of science. Uh, his father was the treasurer for the king of France. And Pascal being a very uh, devoted to his father, would stay up late with his father counting taxes, etc. So Pascal came up with the idea. He said, you know, that clock on the wall, it's counting the hours. I should be able to create a device that will, that will digitally count money. Mm. So the first calculating machine came in the 1600s. And, and, and by the way, there are people who write about science and technology, and they say that that was a very important step toward a computer. I mean, what if the, what if Pascal had lived to be, instead of you know thirty nine, what if he'd lived to be eighty nine? Um, hmm. Might be some other things coming out. Uh, he also came up with a kind of a a mass transit plan for for Paris, uh, and you know he had all kinds. He he invented the syringe. He was. Uh, an eminent scientist. He thought highly of science, but he also recognized that science has limits. Uh, and so he didn't think that science could give you answers about the big questions of life, like, is there a God and how should I live my life? Uh, science was very valuable, but it needed to stay in its lane, so to speak, from Pascal's point of view. Some other ideas that are really important to Pascal, he says, for example, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Uh, the best way I think of understanding what Pascal meant was he was a very forward thinking person. And today philosophers sometimes talk about uh, that ideas and beliefs and commitments kind of come out of three uh, areas of the human being. We, we can base them upon rational considerations like logic and mathematics and evi evidence and all of those kinds of things, or they can be based upon irrational things. You can be blind, uh, prejudiced, you can be biased. Um, he then said, though, that there was a, a non-rational source, uh, and that non-rational source is kind of an inner intuition. And as I, Dave, as I have read other philosophers, uh, this weekend I was listening to an interview um, with uh, Roger Penrose and then later Max Techmark. And both of them said when asked, is mathematics invented or discovered? Both of them hands down said, no, it's discovered. In fact, both of them were committed to the idea that uh, like Plato, there is a real world, a conceptual world out there of mathematics. Now they weren't, um, uh, here I'm speaking of Techmark and- um, uh, Penrose. Yes, the, neither one of them were, were committed to explaining where that world came from. And uh, I thought, boy, I, I, I wish I could coax them a little further and say, well, if there are, there is a world of mathematical ideas, where do mathematical ideas exist? I, I know in my case, they exist in a mind. But 
but the idea here is that Pascal thought humans have an intuition and that intuition runs deep within human beings. And um, so, you know, it, it's kind of amazing that here is this logician, this first rate scientist, you know, he is, he is advanced in terms of his thinking, but he's saying that there is another source of kind of where we come at things. Um, he didn't, of course, he didn't think science could answer metaphysical or spiritual questions. Uh, but he did believe that Christianity had great explanatory power. And, hmm. and, and that's kind of where I want to go next. Uh, but I want to stop in, in case you want to bring up something now. I have a couple of comments. Uh, first, your, your point about wouldn't it have been nice had Pascal lived longer? Think of the things that he could have produced, invented, discovered. But uh, in, in fact, it's interesting that uh, some of the most brilliant uh, scientists, uh, creators in the past, they seem to do their work in the early years of their life, and then they don't produce much in the later years of their life. Uh, I mean, you take Einstein, for example, a lot of his developments, his ideas, his working out of general relativity all occurred, you know, in his early years. And then he just kind of fiddled around trying to make progress, which he didn't make much of uh, later on in his life. And that seems to be true of a lot of different uh, people. They, they have these creative years where they just produce an amazing amount of stuff. And they may, I mean, I've recently read a, a, a biography of Isaac Newton, and it seems like most of the stuff that he really did, he did, uh, you know, before the age of 30. Now, he didn't publish a lot of that stuff until later, but his most creative years were those early years of his life. And then they seem to kind of either get caught up in other things or peter out or uh, you know, work uh, down blind alleys, or in the case of Einstein, you know, he was pursuing uh, theories of everything, but just couldn't make any progress on it. So I, I think it's interesting that maybe maybe Pascal wouldn't have produced a lot of <laughs> extra stuff in those years had he lived. I, I think of the same thing of some composers of music. Mozart, amazing person in terms of his creativity, the music died at a fairly early age. I forgot 39 or something. And, you know, you wonder, gee, wouldn't it have been wonderful if he hadn't died? Think of all the extra music he would have produced, but maybe that's not the case. It's just an interesting idea to think about. <laughs> the second thought that I have is, um, I had said to you earlier, Ken, and I, I just bring it up as a possible source of some discussion, and that is I've, I've leaned towards a tripartite psychology of man rather than a, what, a dualistic or that's not the right word. Dichotomy. Dichotomy instead of a trichotomy. Right. And it just seemed like the statement that you quoted here from Pascal a heart knows things that the mind doesn't know anything about. 
uh, fits in that that tripartite um, model. I thought better than than in a you know, uh, dichotomy. Dichotomy, but uh, you know, who am I to say? <laughs> well, let me just make a couple points. Take your second point first. Um, you know, part of the challenge, I mean, when Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, should we think of that as four different things? And then there are other places where he adds other things. Right. Now, one way of thinking about that is that this is really Hebrew parallelism, that heart, mind, soul, spirit, they're one reality. Now, i as you know, Dave, I accept the dichotomous point of view. Right. But we are dealing with very difficult things to, to describe. And, you know, the Bible is not a book that is written kind of philosophically or scientifically. Uh, that might make, that might sound cringeworthy with you. But what I mean by that is the Bible is a narrative. And, you know, you have to kind of skillfully pull out what, what that narrative might say, as systematic theologians do. I agree with your point about scientists uh, and their early. It, it seems like many of them had very great contributions. I think Einstein was, what, in his mid-20s. Yes. Um, and other, uh, we could name other people that were very early. I wonder, though, from a philosophical and a theological standpoint, that is, Pascal planned to write an apologetic book. Uh, the pensées, uh, or pensées as they're known in French, that means thoughts or reflections. That was kind of his science way. He had a little notepad and he would write down his ideas. He'd do that in science, but he'd also do it in apologetics. And he, he planned to put all those notes together and produce this, this, uh, this, magnum opus of apologetics and i wonder if he'd had more time if he might not have completed that now by the way other people have taken the ponces and developed it people like uh, tom morris christian philosopher people like peter craft another christian catholic philosopher have have done that but sometimes in theology we say you know you've reached your powers um, yeah. now are you, are you worried ken that you've reached your powers I, I think I'm on the down scope. Uh, I, uh, I told my wife not long ago, I said, we're in the fourth quarter. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think the idea of, um, oh boy, I, I think the idea of Mortimer Adler, Adler would say, for example, that he doesn't think you can consider yourself educated until you at least reach the age of 60. Because at, by the age of 60, you have dealt with all of life's real issues. And of course, I think he means, he doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to do your best mathematical or scientific work in your 20s. I think he means you've reached a, a maturity as a full human person. Right. And that's when you can, you know, sometimes I think it would have been better if I lived my life backwards where I could educate my children, you know, when I was a little bit older and more mature instead of being a, a young man. But great points. Now, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Pascal's statement about humanity. And here it is. 
It's again from the Ponce's. He says, quote, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. Now, for a lot of our listeners, Joe and Dave, this is not new. Pascal had this view of anthropology. It's a Christian view of anthropology. And he says, you know, the true religion, that is, think of the, the correct philosophy of life, the right worldview, the, the one true religion in his mind has to account for humanity. And he says uh, that, that true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. Um, human beings are great. Um, I, I think you can make a case for human exceptionalism. I think you can make a scientific case. You can make a philosophical case. I mean, Pythagoras 500 years before Christ said, uh, the universe, the cosmos can be understood in accord with mathematical relationships. I mean, what in the world is somebody saying something like that 500 years before Christ? Or, um, you know, morality, has there ever been any moral principle that was as good or greater than the law of Moses? Um, human beings are able to think about morality. They're able to think about mathematics. They're able to think about philosophy uh, and they're able to create things and, you know, science and technology. So there is this, there is this greatness, I think, about human beings, again, defined, if you will, biblically, theologically, scientifically, intellectually. I mean, I, uh, I, I was telling my wife a little story. She remembered it. Uh, 19, I think it was 1982, I went to a sunrise service on Easter. So we got there about five o'clock and, and it was at Seal Beach. Joe, you know where Seal Beach is in Southern mm -hmm. California. Yep. Uh, that was the beach that I would go to when I was growing up. Well, anyway, I'm at this sunrise service and uh, uh, celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection. Well, what happens? A, a dolphin pops its head up out of the water right near shore, and he looked right at me. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded because, number one, I never saw a dolphin at Seal Beach before, although... I later read that dolphins are fairly common in, you know, Laguna Beach and other beaches around there. So, so it's not a miracle that a dolphin popped his head up, but he kind of looked at me. At least I, maybe I'm embellishing that a little bit, but I don't think so. Anyway, uh, what immediately hit me was, th then of course he ducked his head down and I couldn't find him after that. And I thought to myself, there are several hundred people here at the sunrise service. I wonder if anybody saw the dolphin but me. But then I thought, how many people here know that the dolphin is considered an ancient Christian symbol for the resurrected Christ? Mm -hmm. and, and so I thought, wow, that's kind of a fun Easter experience, yeah. right? Maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's a providential hand. I don't know. I can't say for sure. <laughs> but the context here is I noticed when 
when scientists are care about ocean life, whether it would be dolphins or whales or sharks, you know, human beings are out there kind of caretaking them. They they put little things in their in their bodies so they can track where they go. And, you know, they're thinking, how can we keep this creature from going extinct? And uh, I mean, how many creatures on planet Earth think about your welfare? I mean, you know, the, when the spider comes in my house in the middle of the night and he's on the roof, you know, is he thinking, well, I need to be here to protect Ken from other, you know, other bugs and things like that. Or human beings uh, seem to have an awareness that um, other creatures in the world need them and they want to help them. Now, now of course, there's another side to that. The human beings are also... Uh, uh, fallen and can be ruthless and can create wonderful things like uh, nuclear energy that can later be set forth into bombs. And, and, and by the way, I was watching a television program the other day, and it said it was a it was a show about firefighters, and it said that human beings can be exposed to about 300 degrees, but not for very long. It would cause severe damage, and I thought to myself. It's estimated that the surface temperature at Nagasaki was 7,000 degrees. Mm. So human beings, uh, we care about dolphins, we care about whales, we're trying to keep the sharks from going extinct. But human beings also have another side where in the 1930s, the most educated country in history, Germany, in the 1930s, had a greater percentage of their population with advanced degrees, bachelor, master's, doctoral degrees, uh, than any uh, country in history. And yet, within a few years, the public policy of Nazi Germany was to exterminate an entire race of people, and they came very close to succeeding. So where is this idea? Uh, again, if I can quote the passage from Pascal, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. Now, what I'd like to do a little bit here is I'd like to do a little comparing uh, with this, because I think, I think Pascal is here giving us a very sophisticated biblical anthropology. I think he's giving us a, a biblical theological anthropology. And uh, I think most Orthodox Christians would agree with this, although there is within Christendom differences about how severe sin is and how much freedom we have and things of that nature. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But you know, you know uh, modern Judaism, now I'm not talking about ancient Judaism, and I'm not talking about Messianic Judaism, I'm talking about modern Judaism, and it's estimated that pretty close to half of the Jews in the world are secular. Now, there aren't that many Jews alive in the world. Uh, one estimate it was about 16 million, compared to, you know, 1.8, 1.9 billion Muslims, uh, maybe another billion Hindus. Uh, Christians make up 2.2 to 2.3 billion people. So it's only 16 million Jews, uh, approximately. But modern Judaism doesn't believe in a radical fall. 
Now, maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that Judaism has become more secular over the years. Uh, now, if we talk with an Orthodox Jew, uh, you know, those who are very serious theologically about their faith, maybe they would take a, a stronger view about human sinfulness. But let me give you one that's a more of a puzzle to me than modern Judaism, and that's Islam. In Islam, human beings are not made in the image of God because that would place them too closely to Allah. That would, that would be shirk, where you would be engaged in idolatry. You know, to put man up on a pedestal is getting him too close to Allah. But they, they also don't think human beings are fallen. They, they don't have a belief in a radical fall. They don't believe in original sin. Now, I don't think I'm being unfair to say that Islam historically has had a lot of violence in their religion. But see, they don't believe. They would take issue with Pascal. Where is the, where's the wretchedness? Well, isn't it all around you? Now, how about two other religions? Because I think the five most important religions, um, and what I mean by that in terms of their influence, and particularly in terms of the Western world, uh, those five, of course, would be Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Then I would add two Eastern religions, Buddhism and Hinduism. Now, there are plenty of other religions. We could talk about Shintoism. We could talk about Jainism. We could talk about Taoism. But I think the, these kind of big five, and so I want to say something about both Buddhism and Hinduism when it comes to a anthropology, a view of humanity. Uh, well, for the most part, Buddhists don't believe that there is a human self. They don't believe there's an enduring I. Um, life is impermanent, and the human condition is, is constantly changing. So one of the criticisms that some people bear to bring to bear against uh, Buddhism is they don't believe in an original soul. They don't believe in an enduring I. Um, and so it's difficult to kind of pin down, uh, I mean, what's the problem with humanity? Well, apparently we, we latch on to in, you know, temporal things, and that causes karma which leads to rebirth, reincarnation. But again, who's attaching on if there's no enduring self? And who's, who's reincarnated if there's no self? If the, is the new self different than the old self? Is there any self at all? Now, Hinduism also has a very interesting view. Most, most Hindus do believe in reincarnation, but the pantheistic Hindus, they believe that you're God. We, we are divine but we're kind of suffering from kind of cosmic amnesia. Well, I don't think any of those view, those religious views, in my mind, do as good a job of explaining humanity as Pascal's kind of biblical historic Christian view. Uh, again, that there is within man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of, of wretchedness. Now, one more area, and then I want to talk and I want to stop and um, hear your comments, Joe and Dave. Um, I want to talk about secularism. I want to talk about naturalism. So the worldview of the atheist is what we would call naturalism. And, and, and to put it as concisely as I can, 
naturalism is the belief that ultimate reality, there's no more to ultimate reality than the natural, material, physical world. Now, th that doesn't mean there aren't consciousness or things like that. They, they, can, they can have differing ideas. But, but now the question is about naturalism. I mean, when Darwin proposed his theory of evolution, I think, it, I think the most natural way of understanding Darwin would be to say that he thought that hominids and then, you know, real genuine human beings, that they were only different than the animals in degree. They, they just had a greater qualities and characteristics than the animals have. But Joe and Dave, what I've seemingly been able to discover, partly through talking with my colleague Fuzrana, is that there is a growing awareness, even among secular evolutionary biologists, that human beings aren't different than the animals merely in degree. We're different in kind. Um, you know, that, that human beings have this capacity for symbolic speech. And, uh, you know, this is, this is an incredible advancement by a creature on planet Earth that we're able to take symbols, letters, and blend them together and read and write and uh, listen and speak. We have all of these language skills. And, you know, people say, well, this is, uh, this is an extraordinary happening. But, of course, Mortimer Adler says, yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's largely accomplished by children at seven years old. That is, kids in the second grade can usually read, uh, write, you know, speak, listen, and this is something human beings do at a very early age. And so there is this idea that uh, maybe human beings are different in kind, not merely in degree. We're, we're not just a little bit better than you know, one version of the apes. And, and again, we can think about these qualities that we've talked about. Um, you know, philosophy, what is the ultimate meaning of life? Morality, how should I live my life? Um, you know, your view of the ultimate nature of the cosmos. These are, these are things that human beings think about. Human beings think about death. You know, they think about all of these kinds of things. Now, if I can come back to Pascal, I think Pascal has really hit on something powerful. And that is, should we not think that any religion or philosophy or belief system that can account for these two great principles, one negative, the other positive, greatness and wretchedness, that if a worldview or a religion or a philosophy of life can explain that, then you're probably on the right track of finding the truth. Uh, well, I think Christianity does that. I mean, I, I have never seen Pascal directly connect the greatness to the Imago Dei. I, maybe I missed it, or maybe he doesn't spend time talking about it, but I think most of us would say that the greatness of human beings is because we're made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean we resemble God? Does it mean we have faculties, qualities, a structure, 
um, make moral choices, make spiritual choices, um, have rational faculties, is it that? Or is it uh, more our personhood? We can, we can have interpersonal relationships. Well, you know, the Trinity is the ultimate interpersonal relationship. Or does it mean that we can represent human beings? I mean, like I said, scientists are out there in the ocean uh, taking dominion. I mean, the, the scientists are actually trying to change uh, because they want to protect a particular species. Well, th that seems like there is a greatness to human beings. I mean, I mean, even, even, even humanity's capacity to create nuclear weapons. Man, think of all the work that went into that. Dave, think of the work that went into sending astronauts to the moon. Think of all of that. Now, the wretchedness, of course, from a biblical point of view, is the fall. Um, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Uh, they chose to exalt themselves over God, to follow their own uh, path rather than God. And so human beings are fallen. Now, we have the theological idea of original sin. Not all Christians accept it. Uh, interesting to me that Eastern Orthodoxy, they believe that we have a proclivity to sin, but they don't believe that we're guilty in Adam. So we don't have any original guilt. We have a proclivity. Now, of course, a criticism of the Eastern Orthodox tradition by Western thinkers in the Catholic and Protestant tradition has sometimes been that that church is weak on sin. And I think whether you agree with that or not, usually the great, the stronger view you have of sin, the stronger view you have to have of grace. Mm. The weaker view you have of sin, the weaker view you have of grace. Now, but to, I don't want to put that merely on one branch of Christendom, because I think if you look at Protestantism and you look at the Radical Reformation, uh, you know, when you look at... Uh, you know, the, the Nazarenes, or let's say you look at more the Wesleyan tradition, there are some in that tradition, I think, that would, would question original sin. Now, all I'm saying with that is, I think Pascal's onto that, but I want to pause. I, I, want, I have some other things to say, but I want to pause and let you have an opportunity to interact with these ideas. Oh, it just seems to me that if we think of men being mechanical, natural, the naturalistic perspective, that it, it would be, I don't know, it just seems it would be hard to come up with a view, uh, an idea that, that this person when broken and not functioning correctly would produce the kind of evil that we see people producing in this world. I mean. I mean, when you look at some of the dictators, uh, Hitler, you know, Stalin, I mean, today we have Putin. These are, if you look at them as persons, there is a greatness within them. They're great leaders. They're, they're able to do amazing things. And yet there's a twistedness that is more than just a brokenness. They're not just broken in the terms that they can't think clearly or they can't produce. 
they think very clearly, yeah. but they produce evil. Uh, and it's, it's, it just seems like, I mean, I, of course, agree with you and with Pascal here that this wretchedness goes deeper than just, you know, not functioning correctly. You know, I think of a computer program, you know, you can write these amazing computer programs that, that uh, you know, control different parts of our life or machines that do amazing things. And when you have a broken part of the computer, when some particular uh, either electronic component or the, the program itself has an error in it, it, it doesn't tend to come out and, and bite you or eat you up or, you know, destroy the world. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't do what it was supposed to do. But somehow mankind is able to still do great things, but great evil. Yeah. Now, let me come back to the, that idea, Dave. Um, I remember the first time I learned about the Holocaust. Uh, it just like a hand went inside my stomach and just 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 hit me. Um, and I began to I began to understand that this was a Nazi ideology that had developed the idea that you know uh, the German nation had to eliminate the Jewish population. They it viewed the Jews now whether they really whether the Nazis really believed this or whether they really whether Hitler really believed it. There are debates about these things, but it became policy that that Jews manipulated the money markets, and that was causing the Great Depression. And Jews were behind this ideology known as as communism, and uh, therefore uh, the the First World War was Germany lost because people betrayed them, and those people were the Jews, and so. Uh, this German government uh, develops public policy that they're going to eliminate the Jews. Now, again, these are this is this is arguably the most educated, the most cultured state in history. I mean, I, I mean, it's amazing to me how small the number of Jews are in the world, and yet how many great scientists are Jews? How many great doctors are Jews? How many great philosophers are Jews? Why is it that they have small numbers, but they seem uh, very capable of competing in terms of accomplishment? Now, I, I think you could say something about Germany as well. I mean, how many great German theologians have there been? How many great German scientists have there been? How many great German philosophers have there been? I mean, you know, Germany is not very large. I think it's about the size of, of uh, Wisconsin or Montana. I mean, think of how large America is or Canada or Russia. This little tiny country, highly advanced, very educated, and yet in light of the Great Depression and uh, again, things were bad in America, but things were worse in Europe, and it was really bad in Germany, where at one point I read it was uh, uh, four billion marks to one American dollar. So you have these black and white footage 
people with wheelbarrows full of cash trying to buy a loaf of bread. And uh, I, I, I always think of my son Michael's comment. Um, uh, I've spent a lot of time talking with him and my daughters about World War II because I, partly I wanted them to know their grandfather. I wanted them to know that they had some connection here. Um, and, and I remember my son saying, no dad, you know, cause we talk about color. Wouldn't it be better if World War II were in color? And, and my son, Michael said, no, when I see it in black and white, I know it's real. Mm. It really happened, right? Uh, General Eisenhower went to the death camps and he said, get our cameraman down here right away because someday somebody will say this didn't happen. Mm. Well, again, the greatness and wretchedness. Now, let me make this point. Um, uh, we have a lot of discussion these days uh, about uh, evolution and creation. Um, and you have Christians taking differing points of view, the young earth view, uh, the old earth view, the uh, evolutionary creation view. We've got differing ideas about how Christianity and science are to relate to each other. And of course, right at the heart of RTB is Hugh Ross's basic idea that there are the two books. There's the literal book of scripture. There's the figurative book of nature. Uh, and Hugh, years ago in the mid 80s, said they can be integrated. Um, and that's been part of the RTB ethos for more than you know, 35 years. Now, what I find interesting, however, is because there is debate now about whether Adam was a historical person or whether Adam was the father of all humanity or was there bipedal primates before him, uh, is the Adam we get in scripture the real Adam? Uh, is, it, is it a genetic Adam or is it, is it a genealogical Adam? And uh, was, was Adam maybe one of the hominids? Well, uh, could I say, in light of all of that debate, you could potentially come to a position where you would take the greatness of, away from human beings. You might take the Imago Dei away from them. You might take original sin. The greatness and wretchedness of Pascal might disappear. Now, that, I think... That again, I think, tells you, I mean, I've heard many young earthers say, for example, you know, if you mess around with Genesis, you know, the whole, the whole thing will collapse. Well, part of that, I think, is true. I mean, I would say if there's no first Adam, why should I pay attention to the second Adam? Mm -hmm. What's Adam's relationship to Christ? What's Adam's relationship to me? But Pascal takes this and says, look, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident. I think they're more evident now than they were in Pascal's time. But he says are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. Well, I would say the great principle of greatness is the Imago Dei. The great principle of wretchedness is the fall, original sin. Now, again, lots of debate about the question of original sin, but 
one of the reasons why I believe it, of course, the, the central reason why I believe it is I believe it's taught in scripture. But I also believe it because uh, I, it makes a lot of sense of the man in the mirror. And it makes a lot of sense about human history. Now, again, we can debate whether you merely have a proclivity or whether you also have guilt. And I'm of the persuasion that maybe in the ancient world, they would think of their identity more in collective terms than in individual terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a parent, if my, if my kids do something, you know, if they throw a rock through the neighbor's window, it, they're not going to go after the, my son or my daughter. They're going to come to Ken and Joan Samples and say, you are, you need to recompense this. Or if uh, the president decides tomorrow to go to war with Russia, it isn't just uh, President Biden's war. It's all of us. So there are collective identities in, in some of this, but let me pause again before I go a bit further with Pascal. Joe, comments or questions? Yeah, a, a question just for the sake of clarity for people who might be new to these ideas. Are you saying that a part of uh, Christian anthropology, uh, conservative Christian anthropology, entails the idea that uh, Adam was made in the image of God, but Adam fell, so you have the greatness and the wretchedness. And if you don't hold to a historical Adam, uh, seeing that you brought on the, the last idea there just a few minutes ago, if you don't hold to a historical Adam, it gets a little fuzzy as to uh, where, where the image comes in and where the greatness comes in. And uh, if, if there's no fall, then where does the sinfulness come in? Am I tracking with you that, that there's a fuzziness there? Yes, I think that there is a fluidity and there is a, a fuzziness, a vagueness. I mean, I mean, to some degree, we're being asked to rethink historic Christianity in light of what we know about human biology. And, um, you know, science is provisional after all. Science can change. Now, of course, some people, I, I remember when I met Francis Collins for the first time, um, I asked him, well, how sure are you about evolution? He says, as sure as gravity. And I, I about swallowed my tongue. Mm. Uh, I never heard anybody say it quite in those terms. That's not what I have come to understand about evolution, that uh, the level of certitude does not come at the level of what we would have concerning gravity. But there are these questions. Now, uh, let me be perfectly candid. Um, I think if you adopt an evolutionary creationist point of view or what we used to call theistic evolution, I think as, as long as you can legitimately and viably protect both the Imago Dei and the fallen nature of Adam, so you have a historical Adam, you have a a real time and space Adam who is made in the image of God and uh, that, that original couple is sinful, then I think you, you can hold on to historic Christianity. Now, if Adam was merely a myth, or if there's no in time space fall, or if there's no Imago Dei, I mean, I mean, think about the implications of those ideas. Um, 
you know, we live at a time where there is a lot of discussion about whether people of different races or different genders or different social groups, whether those people are treated equitably. And of course, the history of America uh, is stained with, with slavery. We fought a civil war uh, in large measure over that very topic. Uh, we've had, uh, it, it, took, it took a long time for America to develop uh, civil rights proposals uh, and, and to try to move on these kinds of fronts. But of course, you know, if we're all made in the image of God, if all of us are made in the image of God, men, women, um, black skin, white skin, yellow skin, all human beings, regardless of their, their sex, regardless of their race, regardless of their country of origin, they have dignity and value because they're made in the image of God. I mean, think about how wonderful that is. I think that's really the teaching that overturned slavery. It was that, that fundamental belief. Now, it didn't go easy, but of course, that brings us back to that other greatness, that greatness of sin where people think, hey, I, I, own a, I own other people. You're, you're not a person. You're my property. I, I can do what I want. Dave, you mentioned the totalitarians. Seems like every new generation over the last hundred years, the Western democracies have to wake up and think, oh, oh we forgot about the totalitarians who want to take our freedom. Well, these are very important issues. Um, I, I think... Mean, um yeah, there's a, a, another aspect of this too. In, in a certain sense, when a person is guilty of a crime, one of the things before we try them is we determine whether they're, they're all there or not so that we can hold them accountable. Yeah. And it just seems to me that that's a, a, an acknowledgement of a person not just simply broken, but twisted in some sense, that they're still responsible, yeah. and yet they're corrupt. There's a, they're, and, they're, and they need to be held accountable for this, this crime that they committed. I think it's interesting that in today's society, more and more areas of sin or of of uh, a crime or a failure to produce correct results are being treated as diseases or as brokenness rather than as something you can be held responsible for. But there still is present in law the idea of you being held responsible. And, and even with, even if you take a very strong view of original sin, um, uh, you, you know, I guess Augustine is now the whipping boy. He's the, you know, he's the central advocate for developing this kind of biblical perspective. And, and I was talking with a guy on social media recently, and he said, Ken, your problem is you don't realize the wrong person won. Pelagius should have been the right person. And <laughs> you're back in the wrong pony. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking, wow, your Christianity must be very different than mine. But even if you, if you look at uh, original sin reflected either in the Catholic or Protestant traditions, largely in the magisterial Protestant tradition, so Lutheran, Anglican, um, uh, 
Presbyterian, etc. But even with the fall of human beings, Dave, you still have the Imago Dei. It's tarnished. It's, it's effaced, but not erased. You still have general revelation. You have common grace. Um, it's, you know, people who I know in the helping psycho, you know, in the psychiatric fields that try to help people to come to grips with their mental health challenges, either through counseling or medication. It's hard to find somebody who simply is not all there, Dave, to use your words, right. where they have no responsibility at all. I mean, I see brokenness in myself, but I'm still accountable for that. And I, you know, I often tell people sometimes, sometimes doing ordinary things can actually help you come to grips with your brokenness. Um, you know, getting up in the morning, making your bed, going to work. Um, there are practical things that even, even though you may feel afraid, some of these things can keep you on a, on an even keel. Now, I want to make one last point, but I want to make sure you guys have had an opportunity to ask me questions. I have another question um, uh, for people who are looking um, to, to use this in their apologetic engagement. And certainly we hope that's the case. That's why you do the podcast. Uh, let's say they are engaging with uh, people of a different religion uh, or it could be naturalism or what have you. Um, it seems that uh, what you're arguing for is a, a best explanation uh, kind of scenario, which you're an advocate of, that Christianity best explains the human condition. Uh, well, let's say somebody's listening and they're, they're encountering a person on social media, the, like the one you encountered, the, the guy who is favorable to Pelagius. Yeah. And they, they don't really like the idea of, of sin. It, it seems a bit harsh. Uh, they might acknowledge that uh, humans have been wretched, but it tends to be a handful, uh, really, really bad people doing bad things. But most of humanity is, is pretty good. We get off track once in a while, but others kind of lead us back. So uh, for the most part, people are, are decent. There just are some bad ones, but they're few and far between. So they would say that best explains uh, the human condition and not this uh, idea of, of sinfulness. How would you respond? You know, Hugh Ross said something to me many years ago, and I, I, it was something I, I wanted to always remember. He said that, Hugh said he thought in his mind, humans are both better and worse than evolution can explain. Uh, and I, th I think he has been right. Um, if you look at naturalistic evolution, now a lot of secular people who adopt evolution, who believe in it, they believe somehow human beings are extraordinary creatures. Um, it's not just in degree. It's not just that we have more of the better qualities. It's that we have qualities in a different category. Again, uh, you know, I've been, I've learned that dolphins and whales usually are pretty smart creatures. Um, but even those creatures don't do the kinds of things that human beings have done. Now, Hugh, of course, also said humans are worse. They're both better and worse than naturalistic evolution would explain. So, Joe, a lot of times, you know, um, 
you know, some of the new atheists, they would say, well, this is just, this is all explained by evolutionary psychology. It's, it's all explained by, uh, you know, maybe the very point you made, hey, Ken, don't exaggerate these, you know, yeah, there are the people out there who are sociopaths, who have no empathy. There are these totalitarian people who brutalize people. Um, uh, yet there's also, you know, the Mother Teresa's. There's also the St. Francis. Um, and, and so you have kind of a middle ground where, you know, we're not, we're not all that bad. Um, of course, now the question there, Joe, is who decides what the qualities are? Um, you know, sin in the Bible is described a couple different ways. One is the principal definition of sin is that we're commandment breakers, that we break the commandments of God, um, that we don't keep the two great laws, loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Whether Dave, whether that includes three parts or two parts, love him with everything that you are. We don't do that. We haven't done that. And we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, I think modern psychology also reveals, Dave, that we have a lot of self-obsession. We have a we're consumed with ourselves. But remember what the biblical perspective is. The biblical perspective is that that fallen nature um, it, it's still restrained. It's restrained by the original Imago Dei. It's restrained by general revelation. It's restrained by common grace. I mean, Mozart was not a very godly man, but he made some good music. Mm. Um, well, we're, rest we're restrained too by society. You know that there's a we, we have to live and get along. By government by government mm. by all of these good things. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've I've occasionally been referring to myself referred to myself as a good sinner. And, you know, what I mean by that is I'm, you know, I'm one of these good people. I'm a good person. I, I'm, you know, more or less honest. I treat other people fairly well. You know, I don't do nasty things to them. But you yet, even buy me lunch every once in a while. <laughs> but yet, when I look at my inner being, what I'm capable of, you know, the, the, say the kind of anger that I on occasion expressed and realize that that anger is when unrestrained causes murder. There's moral failures in the past that if unrestrained would, you know, cause me to be guilty of adultery or of, of doing serious damage to other people not just to myself. And I think that as you grow older, you realize that we really are pretty wretched, even though we're good sinners. <laughs> yep. I, you know, the, the medieval theologians, they talked about the seven deadly sins. Now, the idea behind that was they believed there were sins that could destroy your sanctifying grace. So they were deadly. They, you could, they could take you to hell. So you had to not only repent of those sins, but you had to be forgiven, uh, confession by a priest in the Western Catholic tradition, and then take the Eucharist, and that would bring you back into that saving grace. 
But the seven deadly sins, uh, I'll give them to you alphabetically, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Um, you know, Dave, you mentioned I'm a good sinner. Um, but when we look at, you know, when we look at scripture, commandment breakers, when we, we've missed the mark, uh, a lot of times even our best, you know, contains a lot of selfishness. Mm. Um, so, Joe, I think to answer your question, um, I don't think these other psychologies, these other anthropologies, these other religious systems do explain both the greatness and the wretchedness. Now, I, I want to make one last point here, and that is I want to do, I want to engage in the logic because, Joe, you're exactly right. I, I hope people will take these ideas and maybe if they think they're sound, use them in talking to people about the truth of Christianity. You know, you have kind of three ways of reasoning and logic. You have deductive, inductive, and abductive. Deductive, if you construct your argument correctly, you can hopefully come to a certain or necessary conclusion. Of course, that's largely reserved for formal logic, geometry. It, the great thing about deductive arguments is they have certainty or necessity. The, uh, the difficulty with them is they have limited application. Now, induction has much broader application. And of course, science is broadly an inductive method where you know, you are able to use your empirical observation, set up a hypothesis, and you can even test theories and get rid of the bad ones and know that your, you know, your theory or your hypothesis is very good. Uh, of course, uh, that's based upon probabilities. And the good thing is it has a lot of application the bad thing is probability is never certain. That's what makes it probability. Uh, but there are some things you can't use induction or deduction about, and, and that is like an anthropology. I think you would come to abductive reasoning where you would be asking, as you alluded to earlier, Joe, what's the best explanation? And here's how abductive reasoning works. Uh, you might frame it this way. I might say, number one, the extraordinary experience X is recognized. Now, in this case, the extraordinary experience X is this greatness of good and greatness of evil in human beings. That's kind of extraordinary. I mean, I, I like to ask a Muslim, uh, does your religion really account for how much evil is in the world? Or modern Judaism? So number one, there's the extraordinary experience X that we recognize. We recognize there's this duality of human beings, or uh, again, to use Pascal's own words, some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. Okay, I see it. Seems to make sense to me. Then the second point of my argument, but if A is true, X would be an expected matter of course. Now, let me, let me put my data in there. But if Christianity is true, then this greatness and wretchedness would be an expected manner of course. 
So if you plug in Christianity, then this enigma of greatness and wretchedness seems to fit. And then I draw my conclusion. Thus, there is a plausible reason to conclude that A, Christianity is true. It fits the best explanation. And I do think, I, I think humanity is, humanity is not uh, an extra. I think your anthropology, that's always at the heart of your worldview. It's always at the heart of your religion. Um, humanity seems to be, and Pascal says in another place, humans are an enigma, a riddle of greatness and wretchedness. And it's, and it's hard to figure out why. why uh, Pascal even says this, by the way, he says, you know, it is it is kind of difficult to accept the idea that we're all guilty in Adam, that we have this original sin. You know, you might think of it as an infectious disease. Dave, I think you have another description that it's some kind of, um, I forgot what you. Well, sort of a spiritual genetic. Yeah, a genetic kind of malfunction. Well, uh, Pascal says, look, I know original sin is kind of hard to understand, but he says what's harder is to deny it. Mm. It's hard to accept the implications of original sin, but what's harder is to say it's not true. It seems to have such explanatory power. So my focus here is, again, to draw our attention back to the idea of uh, Pascal was a classical Christian. He was a Catholic. And I think, he, I think he was such an advanced thinker that he was able to kind of weave this together. And I, I personally think that abductive reasoning has a lot of explanatory power. I mean, if I knew I was going to die tonight, you know, my heart's going to stop beating tonight, God forbid. But if I knew that and somebody walked up to me and said, Ken, you know, before, you, uh, before your heart stops beating, how do you know that God is really there? How do you know that Christ is the son of God? I think I probably would take a few minutes with the person and say, well, look, um, I think believing in God, believing in the triune God of Christianity, believing in Christ as the son of God, believing that Christ is my savior because of my original sin, or to use that word clear, C-L-E-A-R, I think my Christian worldview explains something about the cosmos, the sea. It, it explains something about the L, my life, my greatness and wretchedness, my yearning, my longings, the E, ethics. I, I know there are certain things wrong. I know slavery was evil. I don't have to think about it twice. I know what Hitler did to the Jews was evil. Uh, you can't explain that with some psychology away. Uh, ethics, E, and then the A, how about abstractions? I mean, how about these wonderful things like the laws of logic? How about mathematics? I mean, I think one of the great arguments for God is that, that in science, you can, do, you can use math to understand the cosmos. I, that to me is theistic science. And then R, religion. Uh, everything from the person of Christ, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, my own experiences, 
I would say before my heart stops beating, I would say, I think my faith makes good sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, do I have complete um, certainty? Do I have no doubts? No, I'm a thinking person. I have doubts from time to time. I, I have moods from time to time. Uh, but I think that's what I would say. Now, you can do this a lot of ways. I could sit down with you and talk about the moral argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the the ontological argument, fine-tuning. I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but if I had just a few minutes to talk to somebody and I knew my life was going to end, that's what I would say. Hmm. And I think that's what Pascal was doing here. Well, Well, those are nice words to end the podcast on. Thank you for that encouragement and and good advice there, Ken. All right, that's going to wrap it up for uh, this podcast. Um, Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week and pass the link along, get other people turned on as well. Uh, Don't forget also that Ken writes a blog every other week. Uh, Check that out, reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. And you can also comment there. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.